0: morning everybody. I'm excited to teach this morning. It's something that I get to do now and then as an elder in the church and really I was telling people earlier uh, before the service just in doing this it it can be a lot of work to prep for this sort of thing but there's a joy and there's a blessing in getting to share God's word with the church. Um, We're in our fourth Sunday of Lent this week and Lent is not something that, uh, depending on your church background, that we're all super familiar with, but Lent is this season of rededication to God, of facing the deep realities, inner realities, external realities of our need for Jesus leading up to Easter in which God has provided everything that we need on the cross. We started our our time with uh, the first week focusing on Simon Peter. And I think the question, during that time, we we talked about who is Jesus. That was the question for our consideration. Uh, The next week, we looked at the mother of James and John. And I think the question that we had to consider then was, what do you want from Jesus? Last week, we touched on Zacchaeus, uh, the wee little man, who, uh, the question that I think we were left to ponder was, how do you respond to Jesus? when he arrives. Uh, and this week we're looking at the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. And what I'd like for us to consider, a question I'd like to, for you to keep in the back of your minds, is why does Jesus do the things that he does? Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we, we need to hear from you. We thank you that your word is alive, that it speaks to our hearts, Uh, in the places that we need to hear your truth. Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to your word this morning? Would your spirit season my words? Lord, would you bless this time? I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Lazarus. It's a story that I think a lot of us who have any amount of time within uh, the Christian faith are are probably familiar with. It's the, the story of the death of one of Jesus' close friends. Uh, and his eventual miracle of resurrection in Lazarus's life. I think a lot of us have heard this story throughout the years, and it's, it is a rich story of who Jesus is and about his power over death and his love for us. But also, I think, this story is a powerful story that is surprising and full of Jesus doing unexpected things, things that were not just hard to understand, but that left the people that he loved, the people that were around him confused and disappointed. I'm excited to share this morning because I think that this story can serve as an invitation to consider why Jesus does the things that he does and to bring a new understanding into our own places of confusion, our own places of spiritual dissonance. The passage has three central characters in it. you got Mary and Martha of the sit at Jesus' feet, and serve Jesus from the kitchen fame. You've got Lazarus, whose claim to fame is this chapter itself. And I'll begin with a question. Have you ever felt disappointed or frustrated with God? Do you ever feel like God has let you down? There can be this gap between the God that you believe in, the God that you know loves you, who you pray to, who you trust with your life, and your own challenging experiences in life. And maybe it's something little that kind of just nags at you when you're in a down mood or, you know, something's going on, you're having a rough week. Or maybe it's something actually really deep and that's like rocking you existentially that you're trying to work through. But it causes you to question the goodness and the promises of God. Oftentimes, I think these spiritual dissonances get ignored in our lives until they've really eaten away at us. Some people have lost their faith in Jesus over things like this, over time. It's a gradual erosion of their faith, and their faith ends up dying, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Some of you are probably wondering where the sermon is going. I don't know, maybe, I think it's because we feel sometimes uncomfortable talking about these things in, in a church setting. For some of us, I think church is the place where we go to turn away from the shadows and look to the light. And we we try to leave these things behind us, try to cast aside the shadows of doubt. And I hear that, but I, I think that until we can bring all of ourselves, the whole parts and the broken parts, into this place to be nourished by the words of God at this table that we all share together, we're not going to be truly filled. And we're going to experience that erosion inside of ourselves. I talked about a table that we're all sitting at together. Do you know what's being served at this table that we're around together? What does God want to nourish your soul with? It's not chocolate cake and champagne, I'll tell you that. It's bread and wine. It's a body broken so that we might be whole. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because it's not communion time yet, we'll get there. But my prayer this morning is that Jesus will meet with each of us in these places, these spaces of unmet need in our hearts. That eyes will be open to the truth of what Jesus was doing in this passage and what he still wants to do today in our lives. So let's get into it. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This story begins with Lazarus. He's a sick man. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, make a request. Or do they? There's no question here. They're not asking Jesus to do something. They, they just simply appeal to the love of Jesus that they know is there. And they trust in that love. Their expectation is that Jesus is going to come and he's going to do something here. But then what Jesus says in response here I think is super interesting. It's really something that's at the core of everything else that we're going to discuss today in the message. Is He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Isn't that odd? We know what happens after this. Lazarus dies, right? This illness was unto death, wasn't it? To quote the classic 1987 film Princess Bride, I think I have a slide for it, this wasn't a situation of Lazarus only being mostly dead, still slightly alive, no. He was dead dead what is Jesus up to here what is this illness this sickness unto death that he's talking about and what does that have to do with God's glory we'll get to that so what happens next verse 5 goes on to say this now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so when he heard that Jesus was ill he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Again, what Jesus does here is a little bit strange. Jesus loved Lazarus. It wasn't a lack of concern, a lack of care that slowed him down here. It says that he loved him and therefore he stayed where he was until he died. He deliberately delays to the point where we can no longer see how he can fulfill his promise. Isn't this kind of unsettling for us to consider? And from here on out, we're going to see, like, very little that Jesus does makes sense to the people around him in this passage. He's operating on a totally different wavelength and doing things on his own time, in his own way, to the bewilderment of everybody around him. He tells his disciples after a couple days, he says, Let us go to Judea again. And they're like, Hey, I'm not sure if you forgot about this, but when you were there just a little bit ago, they were about to stone you, literally. You might want to, you know, wait a little bit and let things cool off, man. And Jesus is like, hey, I've got to do my work while it's still light outside. He says this in the verse, before the sun goes down. Seriously, my time is running out. I've got to go raise Lazarus. The disciples still don't get it. They're like, oh, he's sleeping. Okay, well, sleep is good. Sleep is restorative. I'm sure he'll be fine. Come on, Jesus. Like, just stay. And finally, Jesus just tells them straight up, he says, look, you're not getting it. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. He says this. Can you believe that? He says, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there to stop it, because now, with what you're going to see, you're going to believe. So let's go. And then Thomas steps in. Good old Thomas of doubting Thomas fame. He's called here the twin And tradition says that he was called this because he actually looked a lot like Jesus. He's probably the most similar looking to Jesus of all the disciples. Think about that. If Jesus is going somewhere where his life is going to be at risk, this would put Thomas at unique risk. Jesus is going back to this place where they want to stone him, and and Thomas is kind of like Jesus' ride-or-die here. He, He comes out with this loyal cry of despair. He says in the verse, let us also go that we may die with him. He's bold. And here's the thing. The disciples are not wrong about what's going to happen to Jesus. He's going to go back to Judea. He's going to get killed. But Jesus isn't operating according to the same playbook that those disciples are. Again, the question of this message looms over us. Why does Jesus do what he does? The disciples, and as we'll see next, the two grieving sisters struggle with this. Jesus and the disciples travel to Bethany. So Bethany is this village that's just east of Jerusalem. If you go up from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, just over the hill from the Mount of Olives is the village of Bethany. And from this village, which is on a hilltop, you can see the other direction, down east, all the way down to the Dead Sea. You can see a road that approaches it from miles away. So it's likely that as Jesus is approaching the village, people can see him from afar. And verse 20 tells us, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. At this point, at least four days have passed. Two days of Jesus stalling. Two days of travel from down by the Jordan River where Jesus and his disciples had been when they would received the news. And Martha is here. And this is honest disappointment that Jesus has arrived so late. Mary, the other sister, it seems, in her sorrow and her grief, was too grieved to leave the house, and she just stayed back at home. They knew what Jesus was capable of doing. They'd been around him. He'd miraculously met the needs of so many others, and they expected that he could do the same for Lazarus, their brother, whom Jesus loved. And they're disappointed. They don't understand. Lord, where were you? Why didn't you respond? Jesus, why do you do the things that you do? We feel let down, and now it's too late. Do your hearts resonate at all with that lament? Does that kind of sorrow echo with experiences that you've had? And maybe you just haven't quite come to terms with it or know how to deal with that yet. Proverbs thirteen twelve says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. I think some of us may find ourselves in heart sick territory, at least to some degree. If you haven't experienced this in life, chances are that one day you will. One day you'll experience something like having trusted in God for things and prayed to God for things and sought after Jesus in full faith and in sincerity and then the hour of need comes and goes and nothing happens it's too late our hearts feel sick and in in some shape or form whether that's the literal passing of a family member or a friend or figuratively speaking something inside of us there's a death that has arrived And hoping seems like it's just a bunch of wishful thinking at that point. Maybe you or someone that you love is suffering because of some chronic health condition. And it seems like it'll only get worse unless God intervenes here. Or maybe you feel alone deep inside. Distant from people around you. And you've prayed and prayed to be known, to belong, and to be loved but you still ache with longing for closeness and the world just moves on indifferently. Maybe you've deeply desired to find a spouse or to have kids or to have a family, but for whatever reason it just hasn't worked out and and now it's starting to feel like maybe it's too late. Maybe your work feels meaningless and empty, a routine that you go over again and again, but you can't afford to not work and You feel trapped and you prayed for God to provide a different employment situation or a different sort of way to provide for your family. But nothing has come to fruition and you just feel stuck on this treadmill. There's a million different scenarios where we can feel the disappointment with life, disappointment with God, disappointment with his timing of things. What do we do, Regen, when we find ourselves here in that place? Maybe some of you are less prone to end up there than others. Some of you are sunny-siders and can stay there for extended lengths of time. I'll speak for myself with honesty. This is familiar territory in my life. I've dealt with depression on and off since my late teenage years to the present. It's something that's challenged my faith. It's something that has brought about spiritual dissonance in my life for many years. And some of you may know parts of my story, but Many of you probably don't and so I'm gonna share a little bit about that. I I was born in the United States but soon after I was born my parents moved overseas to be missionaries and most of my formative years were spent in South America, in Colombia. That's me and my family, our prayer card from when I was probably five years old. I came to faith when I was six years old and my dad led me to Christ and even at that age I understood in very simple terms, that my life belonged to Jesus, He had died on the cross to save me because He loved me, and throughout my growing up years, I grew in love and devotion to God. All around me, there were spiritual realities that were just so real. Maybe some of you have experienced this. I think oftentimes when you go to other parts of the world... Spiritual realities tend to be like just very upfront and in your face, and that was my experience growing up. Spiritual darkness was definitely more evident. Demonic opposition was something that like people around me had stories about and had experienced on a day to day basis. When I was around nine years old, I started waking up in the middle of the night with this sense of thick, oppressive darkness just hanging over me, and I would hear things that sounded like non-human voices and I, I couldn't understand what they were but they were scary and I, I didn't know what that was um, it was intense and it was scary but even as the the darkness was so real the light was even more so real. His presence, God's spirit was there and evident in answering prayers. My mom and my dad would sit with me when I would wake up at night in these moments and pray with me through those times and it's, it's hard to even remember how many times this happened but they would pray with authority. They would pray with the power of the blood of Jesus against the enemy and over me with perseverance until there was a peace that entered into my life. Uh, a peace of God that, as, as scripture says, did surpass all understanding and did guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. This was the environment that I grew up in spiritually. It was, it was, there was so much joy in worshiping together with the church. It was alive with the presence of God. My faith grew strong in that soil. I knew just a confidence in the Lord. I felt a sure-footedness. I felt this abiding trust in the love of God. I hope that you've all had some experience like that in your life. But my life wasn't just a matter of one hallelujah fest after another. It was, there were still times of struggle. There were still times of sadness and spiritually difficult times. But at the bottom of everything, my world made sense. The realities of God's kingdom, the realities of God's love were solid to me. I graduated from high school back in 2004 in Columbia, and that coincided with the time that my family was leaving Columbia for good. They were moving. And so I decided, you know, in that year I was going to take a gap year. I was going to spend some time trying to figure out, you know, what to do next and sort of dedicate some some time to to being with God and and, uh, trying to grow spiritually as well. So I joined Youth with a Mission, if you're all familiar with that organization. I did one of their six-month discipleship training schools. And the hope that I had was that I could be more formally discipled, that I could get some direction from God around what my next steps should be in life. And so I, I set aside this sacred time to grow and to seek a calling. What it ended up being was Not what I expected. I was trying to think of how to put this, but have you ever had the experience of going down a set of stairs? That, you know, it's at your house or at your place of work. It's it's a set of stairs that you've been up and down probably hundreds of times in your life. And as you're going down these stairs, I wish I had a wireless mic so I could like demonstrate it, but like, as you're going down the stairs, you're not even thinking about going up or down the stairs. It's just something your body knows how to do, but, but suddenly there's, You miss a step you can't believe that like this these stairs aren't what you expected that they would be it's it's this sinking feeling in your gut you know you've had this experience you know what I mean you you weren't consciously thinking about what step was next and whether you were done descending but your body somehow knew it thought that you were done going down the stairs and you get this surprising uncomfortable jolt in your stomach You don't know if you can feel sure of yourself and of your footing. Your confidence around these stairs is compromised. I don't know how to explain it better, but something in my life had changed at that point. In my world, in my relationship with God, the experience that I had during that gap year was disorienting. It was hard. And in the midst of of losing my home, this place that I'd grown up in and loved, in the midst of being far from my family that I loved... The worst part, the hardest thing for me somehow was that it felt that I'd lost my sense of connection with God. I'd gone into all of that change. I knew it was coming years ahead. I went into that change thinking, as long as I can lean on God through all of these transitions, I'm gonna be all right. And then the God that I so wanted to lean on during that time didn't seem to be there. I didn't feel his nearness, his peace, his comfort. Scripture lost its flavor on my tongue. The truth is, I I didn't deeply despair at that time. I thought about it as this momentary thing that would soon pass, as though it was a test or something, and I I just kept doing my part to seek and hope and look for Jesus. I went to college after that gap year in the Chicago area, and I I basically just kept on keeping on. Uh, I was starting to feel kind of down by what felt like this loss of God's nearness. And by sophomore year, it was clear to me that this wasn't just a momentary test or a season of spiritual dryness. I had become depressed. And the spiritual life and the kingdom realities that I'd built my whole worldview around, the spiritual warfare that had been so real, and all these essential parts of my world were beginning to feel like just mirages. Like things that were hallucinations that I had experienced as a a young mind that was impressionable. And one of the hardest things, church, one of the hardest things was understanding why. Why would the God that I had known to be trustworthy and lovingly present in my life become distant and inaccessible at this hour of my need? Like I said, I puzzled over whether I was being disciplined because of some sin in my life, or whether it was like that passage in Daniel where there's this, this angel that's supposed to come and deliver a message to Daniel, but the, the, the angel is delayed because of some spiritual battle that the angel is having that has nothing to do with Daniel himself. Read it, it's there in the Bible. Mary and Martha's confusion in this chapter the struggle to comprehend how Jesus, who they knew, loved them could choose to act in a way so seemingly out of tune with that truth. That dissonant felt really real to me, and I'm sure you can think of many ways that this experience might be familiar to you too. And so we we ask of God, we ask why. We begin to question the love of our Heavenly Father. And really, at, at issue here is something fundamental that we get wrong about our faith. And that's that we so often forget the great why of God. What is the reason for all that God does? The great why of God. David Platt is this, uh, this pastor on the East Coast and has this really excellent book from uh, several years ago called Radical, where he talks about this. And I, I recommend that, you know, if you want to read about this more, you, you check it out. But the idea is this. If I were to take a poll, say, of every church across America, all the, the people in the pews on a Sunday morning, and if I were to ask them, how would you summarize the message of Christianity? What do you think that we would hear back? It would most likely be something like this. It would say, the message of Christianity is that God loves me. Sounds familiar, right? Or maybe more specifically the message would be, God loves me enough to send his son, Jesus, to die for me. And that's a message that travels well. It's not a message that's incorrect, church. God does love you. But it's an incomplete message. It's not the essence of biblical Christianity. If God loves me is the message of Christianity, then who is the object of Christianity? God loves me. Christianity's object is me in that way of thinking. And this is what... I think has become the norm in this day and age. We live in an age in a culture of me, me. When I look for a church, I look for a church that has the kind of music that I like, has the the programs that best suit me and my family. Uh, When I consider plans for my life and my career, it's about you know finding what works best for me and my family. It's it's about finding choosing what house that I want to live in, choosing what clothes that I want to wear, what car that I want to drive. We've been trained by an individualistic, by a a marketing-saturated world to make it all about what is best for me. And this is the version of Christianity that's dominant in our culture and and sadly in the world, I would say. It's really pervasive, and, and to a lot of us, I think it's become invisible because it's so prevalent. It's something that we're breathing Day in and day out. It's something that we're normalizing. It's something that we're even rationalizing when we do sort of start to talk about it. And, church, this is not biblical Christianity. The message of biblical Christianity is that God loves me, period. The message of biblical Christianity is this listen, God loves me so that I might make him, his ways, his salvation, his glory known among all the nations. The object of Christianity is not me. The object of our faith in Christianity is God. The chief end of the gospel is not us. That's not it. The chief end of the gospel is God. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23 says this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. And then you will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. The centrality of God's glory is the reason for all that happens. That's consistent with what we see in Scripture all the way from Genesis through Revelation across every era of Biblical history, across every genre of Biblical literature. God pours out His grace on the world and blesses them for the sake of His glory. Think about Abraham. He's blessed to be a blessing. Time and time again, this is seen in Scripture. And that, Regen, is the great why of God. All that He does is so that He might be glorified. Some of us may like instinctually react to this and kind of scratch our heads and say like, isn't it strange for God's exaltation to be the reason for all that he does or allows? Maybe we're, we're starting to wonder, is that a bit selfish or egotistical of God to make it all about himself? Like, come on, God. But we got to remember, God is not us. We shouldn't project our human categories onto him. He is an eternal and a holy God over everything. Here's David Platt again from that book that I mentioned. How can God's purpose be to exalt himself? This is a good question, and it causes us to pause until we ask the follow-up question. Whom else would we have him exalt? At the very moment God exalted someone or something else, he would no longer be the great God worthy of all the glory in the universe, which he is. So now, church... How can Jesus say to his followers in this passage? The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The reason he can say this is because the life and death that he's speaking of here is a deeper and truer reality than the physical life and death that we're fixated upon in our lives. To know him is to know life and to reject him is to know true death. And be separated from the one from whom all life flows. He makes this claim a few verses later. And we'll get to that too. But the illness of Lazarus. The heart sickness that maybe you have felt. The disappointment in your life. My own struggles with the loss of God's closeness. If we're in Christ, these are not an illness unto death. How God's glory is going to be revealed may be a mystery to us. It may be through something seemingly impossible. And we'll see that in the remainder of this passage as well. One of the things I want to touch on, though, before I move on, is I don't want you for one second to think that God's love is being displaced by his glory. It's not diluted or compromised by the centrality of his glory. His love, as we'll see as we go further into this passage, is right there all along. And the great reward of the gospel with God's glory at the center of it, is not our feelings of safety or security, our own satisfaction. Again, let's get this me thing out of our minds. The reward of the gospel is God himself. That's who you get. There's no greater love that we can be given than the gift of himself. And the cross looms before us now. Think about it. God giving himself to us. Are you tracking with me here? The moment... The experience that we have, this disconnect we feel between the God whose character, whose promises we know, and the experiences we have in the day-to-day, leaves us with this gap. And we have to figure out what to do there. So again, what do we do when we wrestle with that? When we feel like God has let us down? And I think here is where we can learn so, so much from Mary and from Martha in this passage. Let's look at what Martha says here in verse 22 of John 11. Look at her faith. She says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She doesn't understand why. Jesus has chosen to do something that, you know, is his choice. And the result to her was heartbreaking. She doesn't understand it and doesn't even know what to ask for here, but she trusts Jesus. And Jesus responds to her in verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha's response is, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha does something that I think we do often. She makes the words of Jesus and the promises of God something for someday. Maybe in heaven we'll experience that. Maybe someday over the rainbow we'll get to to have those promises and that goodness and that joy that God has promised us. Church, it's one thing to trust in God's timing, to be patient in those things, but it's another thing altogether to have a belief in God that is incapable or unwilling to accept that he will meet you in the present, in your impossible hour of need. So let's not forget who our God is. Look at these examples in Scripture. He's the God who parts the Red Sea as the armies of Pharaoh are in pursuit so that his people can walk across dry land. He is the God who sends fire from heaven into an impossibly soaked offering to consume the offering to overcome the prophets of Baal. He's the God who shows up in the flames of a furnace that is so hot that it killed those who were ordered to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego inside. He doesn't stop it before they're getting thrown in there. They're in there. They're in the furnace. And what does God do? He meets with them there in the flames that should have scorched them to death. And he rescues them. God, would you give us faith to believe that you can be present in our lives here today. You can rescue us today and now in our moments of need. Yes, Lord. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the son of God who is coming into the world. We serve a God who calls himself the resurrection and the life. He didn't claim to have resurrection and life. He didn't say that he understood the secrets of resurrection and life, and so he would be sharing those with people. Instead, Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. This is not a a metaphor, really. This is I thought of, like, when you're sitting on the beach and it's a beautiful day and the waves are coming in and you kick back and you just say, like, ah, this is the life. Like, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying he's a pleasant guy to be around and you're going to enjoy, you know, being around him. He's the life. No. Jesus is himself life. He is the author of it. He is the source of it. He's the sustainer of all of it. He's the purpose for it. He's the way to it to life. He's the truth that's behind all life. Put yourself in in Martha's shoes here. And for me, at least, this isn't too hard to do. Do you think this really made any sense to her? Do you think that she understood what Jesus is talking about? I don't think so, but yet she believes. She gets this thing right. She confesses Jesus Christ is Lord, and she trusts in a way that has transcended her own personal understanding of what's going on and what Jesus is going to do. There's a faith there. Region, even when we don't understand how the character of God and the promises of God are going to work out in our lives, can we still believe? Can we still trust God? Here's what happens next. Here comes Mary, verse 28. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're still outside of Bethany, and her words are so similar to what Martha had told Jesus. She's similarly hurt, she's similarly confused, that the one who loved her brother, who loved her would do what he has done And the emotions begin to flow freely here. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Jesus is deeply moved. He is troubled in his spirit. And he weeps. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he jump up and just say, Stop weeping. Let's go over here. Check out what I'm going to do. You don't have to weep anymore. I've shared in this message how deeply challenging it can be to find ourselves in this place that's beyond understanding and how our disappointment with our own circumstances and our our perception of God's absence or inaction can just weigh on our hearts I've shared how it's God's love ultimately that's compelling him to do the things that he does and yet we so often find it hard to understand that love in practice in our lives I've shared how all that God does is ultimately for his glory and that glory in our lives, though we may not see it, it's the greatest expression of love that we can know. But lest any of us believe for a millisecond that this way of loving is too foreign for our hearts to grasp or that his glory is too abstract a thing to bring us comfort in a dark night of our souls, look at the heart of God that's revealed for us. He's moved deeply by our grief. Our grief. Our grief. He's not the slightest bit indifferent toward your suffering. Even if we just don't get it, even if uh, only God knows how the, the circumstances will ripple through eternity in ways that we can't begin to understand, he's still in deeper love, in deeper sympathy for you than any parent, than any friend, than any spouse, than any lover could ever be. Psalm 56 gives us this image of God who sees every one of our sufferings and takes every tear and puts it in a bottle. And think about this, Regen. Would you weep over things that were not valuable to you? If when you hurt, you've created grief in the heart of the God who is over all the cosmos, are you not of immense, immense value to God? through and through our God, is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding, in steadfast love. And just an aside, if if Jesus weeps this way for his friends, for those that he loves, are we even a little bit like that with people around us? Do we sense the pain of others? Do people around us sense that we care about their pain? Do we allow ourselves as he did to be deeply moved, to be troubled by the grievances of others? If not, we have some confessing to do. We have some work to do. We are called to love as Jesus loves. And this is what it looks like. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I love how the King James Version puts it. It says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) Uh, Jesus said to her, verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Easter is right around the corner. I don't want to get ahead of myself because this is Lent, we're not there yet. But can you feel the visceral energy of resurrection, of the power and excitement of what Jesus, who is himself the resurrection, has done? There was this Jewish superstition, that's a tongue twister, Jewish superstition at the time that said the soul would linger around kind of the place where someone had died for about three days Uh, in hopes of maybe reuniting with the body. It was a superstition that they had. But four days after death, where they were then, there was no hope of resuscitation. In fact, there wasn't even a whole body for the soul to return to. Lazarus was this decaying, reeking corpse. But yet from a place beyond understanding, from impossible clutches of death, here comes life. This is a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Region. We serve a God who takes dead things and brings them back to life. Who can reach into the cloud of absurdity and confusion of your own circumstances. He can bring forth life. Do we dare to believe that? This is our hope in life. It is our hope in death. It's Christ who is our resurrection. So why does Jesus do the things that he does? Why does he Sometimes do things that we don't understand how they fit in with his character, with his promises. Why does he do things that disappoint us? Again, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But yet he loves us and is moved to weep with us. He is near to the broken hearted. And Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, can still do the seemingly impossible in our lives. And we'll see that in Easter in a few weeks, that he already has. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your resurrection life that is at work within us. Lord, I pray that we would acknowledge that we would be Willing to bring before you even those dissonances, even those hurts and places of unmet need before you and say, Lord, I, I don't understand, but I will still trust. I don't know where you are, but I know, God, that you are near and you are sympathizing with me, Lord. You weep over my grievances. Lord, may our lives be for your glory. Would we disentangle ourselves and disavow this idea of it being about us, that your salvation, that your gospel is about us. It is about your glory, Lord. May the message of the death and resurrection of Lazarus resonate uh, in our hearts and our minds throughout this week. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of communion now. And As we do that, if any of you need the little cups and and crackers, raise your hand and we'll get those to you. If any of you have heard this message and and you're carrying a burden within your hearts of disappointment or of confusion with Jesus, I want to invite you to come and and receive prayer. Um, Susanna and Mike are here up in the front pews and they would love to pray with you. That God might meet you here in some way and show you his grace. And if now is not a time where you feel like you can talk about this, um, I encourage you also to just reach out to the elders of the church. We would be honored to sit with you, to talk with you about these areas in your lives. I shared some of my own story of spiritual dissonance and depression that came about when I, I lost that sense of closeness with God that I'd known at a time when I I needed him most. I'm turning 37 this week, and, and my experience with God has never returned to what it was before during those intense days, that intense nearness that I had as a kid and as a teenager. And I still struggle with depression off and on. I still miss that sense of intimacy that I knew. But to be completely honest, as I pray for renewal, as I pray for experiencing that again, I still find myself asking God, why? But the truest, church, the most satisfying answer that I've known to the question of why, and I think the most satisfying answer that any of us can know, is not, as Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 2, some form of lofty speech or, or wisdom to impart that's going to answer that question. But it's what he says. He says, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The answer is a person, the answer is a body that's been broken for you, and the blood that's been spilled for you. And in that death, our own loss can be held. Our own grief can be transfigured. Our own doubt can be transformed. It's a grace that you can still reach for. It's the hope of glory at work within us. And and I want us to bring today our brokenness and our need to be nourished, not by chocolate cake and champagne, but by bread and by wine. Romans 6.5 says, For since we have become one with him by sharing in his death, we shall also be one with him by sharing in his resurrection. So I invite you now to take this bread and to take this cup and to share in his life. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of yourself.